0: Gotta tell somebody. This is Someone. the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this.
1: Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable Big Daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. What? Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Barbie the movie. With the help of special guests, the director of content development and phone media at Autodesk, Kylie Swenson.
2: Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and planned choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by.
0: So cool. You can find me under the light
2: under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday and so is tomorrow
0: and every
1: day from now until forever. Kylie, how are you?
0: Oh, I'm so great. Thank you for
1: having me. I am so great as well. I'm super excited to chat about Barbie and about Autodesk and your background. So tell us a little bit about your work at Autodesk.
0: Okay, well, so I, I'm formerly a music journalist. I used to be an editor at Music magazines, and then eleven years ago, I came to Autodesk. Pretty different world, but I parlayed my journalism skills to become like a brand journalist, content marketer at Autodesk. And many people know Autodesk as the AutoCAD company, and that is one software solution we offer. But our software is actually used to design and make virtually anything: so buildings, bridges, cars, wind turbines, vacuum cleaners movies, special effects, video games, you know, I could go on and on. So I lead a team of content creators, producing thought leadership and SEO driven content for mainly for executives, but anyone who is interested in being inspired, informed and, and assisted by the content we create that is really driven to inform the industries we serve. And that's Architecture, engineering, construction, manufacturing, and media and entertainment. The stories that we develop aim to help audiences navigate the uncertainty of the drivers of change. And they could be like macroeconomic, geopolitical, environmental, everything from climate change to urbanization to labor shortages, scarcity of money and materials, you know supply chain issues. There's just a lot, a lot that we can talk about. And we do that by really focusing on technology and what it can do to solve these big problems.
1: And might I add, you have been running Redshift as well, or you were running for years and all of the different pieces of content that go with that, which is a a pretty incredible content library and publication that you've ran for years.
0: Thank you. And actually, it was just rebranded. Now it is called Design and Make with Autodesk, which is, you know, we're really focused on this category of design and make, design and make platform. And so we're aligning with our our mission to focus on that category.
1: Yeah. And I mean, so how, and we'll get deeper into this later on in the show here, but I mean, how, what's the breadth of of how much stuff you've created for this publication, which is now Design and Make with Autodesk? <sighs>
0: I mean, there can be some really niche stories about how 3D printing can help create, you know, skull implants for people or, you know, basically assist with sort of IVF for coral reefs. It can be kind of really niche like that or we can be talking about the digital factory, the Porsche factory in Germany or uh, in Leipzig or we could be talking about I mean, just, you know, as I mentioned, we are working with so many different customers across these industries that it's just like we have a vast array of stories that we can tell, and it never gets boring because of that.
1: And I would list all of the awards that you've won, but there's quite literally too many to list on the show, including uh, Webby's People's Choice Award, uh, Webby Honorees. Content Marketing Awards, Best Brand Newsroom from Digiday, and on and on and on and on. But truly a best-in-class publication and being Editor-in-Chief for a long time. I feel like you know, you've know you been doing what a lot of marketing uh, leaders, especially content marketing leaders, have wanted to do for their companies and have not gotten it approved over the years.
0: I'm very lucky.
1: Thank you. <laughs> okay, so why the heck did you choose Barbie the movie to talk about today?
0: Okay, so... I actually watched the Barbie movie three times now. I never would have imagined that would happen, but it completely took me off guard. I assumed it would be fun. I took my family, including my nine-year-old daughter, my 12-year-old son, but I really did not expect to be like laughing and crying and it's just very multi-layered.
1: I always knew that Barbie would surprise me, but I never expected this.
0: You know, I think Mattel and Warner Brothers, they have marketing machines that are formidable, But it would not have been Warner Brothers' highest-grossing film in its 100-year history if it hadn't been so well done. So I just think there are a lot of lessons to glean from it, and I love them.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit in our prep, and I think it's something that I think is so fascinating is Lego Movie came out a decade ago, and it took a decade for them to make Barbie. And I think that, like, that is so long. That is like incredibly long for something in the Lego movie that was like a smash hit every which way. And good things come to those who wait and they did it the right way. And, and we'll get into that here in a second. But I think that that is truly fascinating to me that they did not just do this the next year after Lego Movie, right? After that was a smash hit. Like, I can't believe that they just didn't put it right on the docket and say, like, we're going to build this movie in the next 18 months. So it's a fascinating topic for me in, in that way as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're notoriously... Mattel is notoriously very protective of its brand. So, you know, I'm not surprised that it took this long, but it sounds like their CEO, Enon Kreitz, has a vision for a lot more content. There are going to be a number of other movies coming. I mean, especially given the success of the Barbie movie.
1: Yeah, they're basically franchising out their content for the entire rest of the company. And I love it, and I'm here for it. Oh, yeah. Meredith, what the heck is Barbie the movie?
2: So Barbie the movie, obviously, is a live-action movie based on the Mattel toy.
1: That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire.
2: It was released this year... To great acclaim, Um, it starts Margot Robbie as Barbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken. And it's about Barbie being a Barbie girl in a Barbie world, right? So she's living in this idealized, very like plasticky world. But what's cool is it's matriarchal. So it's the Barbies that have sort of like this high value. There's like President Barbie and so on and so forth. And it's not just Margot Robbie who plays a Barbie, but they're all different types of Barbies and reflects the history of the Barbie doll. Hi, Barbie. 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 Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. So, like, there are different body types and there are different skin colors and things like that, which is super cool. But she suddenly has this existential crisis.
1: you guys ever think about dying?
2: Which sort of like manifests in her feet going flat instead of like being always positioned to fit into a high heel shoe. My heels are on the ground. I'm no longer on tiptoes. That's okay. Let me see. <gasps> flat feet! She gets cellulite. She has bad breath. Bad breath this morning, a cold shower, burnt waffle, and falling off my roof. And so she goes to see Weird Barbie, who I love, actually, is my favorite character, played by Kate McKinnon. Welcome. Welcome to my weird house. And she's sort of this wise, like, all-knowing Barbie. And she tells her that she has to go find the girl who plays with her in the real world so that she can sort of cure these symptoms. And so that starts her on this journey of, like, this existential, like, what-is-life sort of journey. You've opened a portal.
0: I didn't open a portal. Someone did. And now there is a rip. In the continuum, that is the membrane between Barbie land and the real world. And if you want to be stereotypical Barbie perfect again, the baby girl, you got to
2: go fix it. But it's directed by Greta Gerwig, who said that with this movie, she wanted to give people, and she says, and girls, but people, so it's like all-consuming, the sense of you're okay and you have value just as you are. It's not something you earn or you need to achieve. Symbols like Barbie are an important way to reflect back the enoughness of just being a girl, being a woman, being a person. And that's what I wanted to explain in this movie, because Barbie for so long has been a symbol of the thing you could never be. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be a part of the sisterhood, but always stand out and always be grateful. So I thought that was really interesting. And to keep it fresh, I was just looking up new stats on the movie and it's become the highest grossing movie of the year with now it's over 1.4 billion brought in globally, which is wild. And it also makes Greta Gerwig the most successful solo female director ever. There's also speculation that stock for Mattel may rise up to 25% because of the movie. I think it's like 20-something bucks a share, but still, you know. And then I also saw that Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are expected to reunite in an upcoming sequel to Ocean's 11. But yeah,
1: that's it. So, Kelly, why'd you find it so remarkable?
0: Well, like I said, I was very surprised after watching it the first time. I assumed the target audience would be limited to people who played with Barbie, you know, as kids. But it was much more universal and multi-dimensional than that. I left the theater not only surprised, but somewhat emotionally spent.
1: Did you do Barbenheimer or just Barbie?
0: (laughs) You know what? I still have not watched Oppenheimer. My husband and son went to see it, and I hear it's like a three-hour movie, and... I will watch it at some point, but I, I did not
1: do both. So what were your marketing takeaways for Barbie?
0: Okay, so I have three. The first one I have, and I thought of these in relation to my work at Autodesk. So the first one is a lesson that I have learned in 11 years at Autodesk is that you should be ready to pivot. Companies can't wait to be disrupted by other companies and CEOs like Enon Price, they need to be able to see around corners, so to speak. So then when there were other dolls like Bratz and Frozen's Elsa and the LOL OMG Surprise Dolls, you know, started to eat Mattel's lunch a little bit, one, they debuted that more diverse group of Barbies with different body types. There was a tall Barbie and a curvy Barbie and a petite Barbie. And then the LOL Surprise Dolls came along. My daughter had a... Barbie Dreamhouse, but at a certain point, there were more OMG dolls in that Barbie Dreamhouse than there were Barbies. Mm. So, got a little scary for Barbie.
1: Trouble in paradise.
0: I'm bummed. You're a bummer. That's a bummer. Okay. (laughs) Right. So, then the CEO of Mattel decided to sort of capitalize on the company's intellectual property and make that live-action Barbie movie. So, obviously, he made a very, very smart move. Everybody involved to bring Greta Gerwig into the fold, along with Margot Robbie, of course. And I think what makes it extra special is that they poke fun at some of Barbie's more problematic history. You set the feminist movement back 50 years. You destroy girls' innate sense of worth, and you are killing the planet with your glorification of rampant consumerism. So in the marketing org at Autodesk, we've had to pivot a lot. One example of that is during COVID, a few of us looked at the content performance, For the thought leadership content, which was Redshift at the time, now Design and Make with Autodesk. And we realized that the stories were not resonating in the way they used to. People were not paying attention. They were like, just COVID, 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 right? And so we very quickly pivoted and started creating content that we felt would be very relevant to people in COVID times. You know, how do you design for remote workforce? You know, we really just went wholesale in that direction and started creating that kind of content. And then people got sick of COVID content. They didn't want to read it anymore. And they got sick of COVID. And so we went back to our original direction. So that's one. Another one, I would say, another marketing insight or takeaway from the movie is inclusivity. I found a Barbie. This was when I was a kid at like a, an estate sale and... It was probably, like, one of the first Barbies, like one of the, like, 1960s Barbies, and I immediately turned her into weird Barbie. I heard that she used to be the most beautiful Barbie of all, but then someone played with her too hard in the real world. I pierced her nose. I dyed her hair pink. I just, like, was having a great time. Now, fast forward to my nine-year-old. She's taken it to a totally different level, like, shaved her head, tattooed her face. Like, you know, it's a little more more weird and, you know, and then eventually the Boston Terrier puppy ate her arms off. So, she's super weird Barbie.
2: Why is she always in the splits?
0: I also love Kate McKinnon's character. I think, you know, so funny, you know, so likable and it's another reason why that movie is so relatable. So, what'll it be then? You can go back to your regular life and forget any of this ever happened? Or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice Is now yours.
2: The first one, the high heel. No,
0: we'll do a redo. Inclusivity is actually a very, very important value at Autodesk. We have something called the culture code. And every year, people are evaluated, not just on what they do, but how they do it. And they're evaluated on inclusivity as a value. So, as part of this code, looking at ways to check our biases, you know, learn to work collaboratively with people from all walks of life. Uh, I mean, we're a global company, right? So I have somebody on my team who's in Tokyo, somebody in Munich, somebody in Detroit. You know, like we've got people all over the world. So even people in Israel right now. So it's, there's just, that culture code is very important to the company. The third marketing takeaway for me from Barbie is kind of an extension of inclusivity, more broadly, about expanding your addressable market. So the Barbie movie doesn't just appeal to young girls and mothers. I mean, I was really surprised, but grandfathers, dads, boys, non-binary people, I mean, it's really meant to be universal for everyone. And then there's this quote from Vanity Fair that I think sums it up really well. It said that the Barbie movie is part satire, part earnest fable, and part big-minded meditation on the nature of existence. Uh, I could not have put that better myself. So I I bought this issue of time. The whole issue is about the movie, or just about Barbie in general. The head of marketing for Warner Brothers said, uh, his name is John Goldstein, he said it stopped becoming a marketing campaign and took on the quality of a movement. So this is another reason why it's so incredibly successful is that, you know, you started to see real life Airbnb Barbie dream houses and Crocs and ice cream and Monopoly games and watches and all these things, right? When I think about that and relate it back to Autodesk, I realize like that we can't outgrow this notion that we are the AutoCAD company if we can't become more of a known brand that people can equate with a broad set of capabilities across architecture, engineering, construction, manufacturing, and media entertainment. So, you know, we're a B2B company. We're probably not going to become a household name like Barbie, but we definitely have a lot of room to grow. And that's something that we always have to be mindful of.
1: I think it's really hard when you're selling to those type of industries that are so different, right? Like, obviously, there's personas within those that are similar, but, like, they're so different, and you really can't be everything to everyone would the person in manufacturing rather read Design to Make or would they rather read Manufacturing Today, you know, or whatever? So, like, those are those really hard decisions that you have to make. And I'm curious, like, how did you think about shaping all the different verticals and personas within your entire, like, very large customer base?
0: So, what I believe differentiates Autodesk from other companies, and there are, obviously, we have competitors in those spaces, is that... We offer all these solutions to these industries, and there's a convergence of these industries. I I can give you one example. So Walt Disney Imagineering, they work on the experiences at the parks, at the theme parks. So I think the Star Wars, Galaxy...
1: Galaxy's Edge.
0: Yes, Galaxy's Edge is one example of that. They used all of our software, They used the, you know, construction software. They used um, manufacturing software for the animatronics for the, you know, all the special effects and imagery and videos. And, you know, they used the media to entertainment software. So there actually is a convergence of all of these things. And I think what is really smart, a really smart move, our CEO, Andrew Aniknason, and other leaders in the company are making is they're betting on, connecting the workflows across the entire life cycles for each of the industries, but also, you know, when there's convergence. So they're thinking, you know, traditionally, people, architects would, you know, have their way of working. And then you would lose all of this information when they would hand it off to the engineer, hand it off to the construction general contractor. And now we're trying to connect everything so nothing is lost. So it's all coming together in a sort of platform or, you know, industry cloud, uh, we call it, and all of this powered by AI.
1: And I mean, we can get into it a little later here too, but like many mouths to feed, right? Many verticals to feed. How do you prioritize content and how do you think about who we should be making for this? But I think that your story there with Galaxy's Edge, and by the way, fun fact that the head of creative at Caspian, shout out to Landon, was Walt Disney Imagineering and he worked on the rides and all the sound design for the rides in Florida. But I think that one of the things that I really liked about that example is it's such a good story. And like, hey, Do you know how they made Galaxy's Edge all together? And guess what? It was all thought of Autodesk. You know, like that's the sort of stuff that I think is so great about storytelling and about B2B is like finding the threads that connect, you know, your product, especially when you have something as big as yours and being able to dive into all that. I think it's something that people miss a lot of times where it's like, if you have like a big sexy case study that's really cool, like you should be getting that out in front of as many people as humanly possible because that's the big cool one, you know.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really fun. It's really fun to be able to tell so many different compelling and emotional stories, you know? I don't know that I would be here if I didn't feel that I could tell a story that made me, I don't know, made me feel something.
1: I love that. You know, zooming out, obviously you've been with Autodesk for a long time, but if you were coming back in fresh, you know, if you walked out the door and walked right back in, what would be your content strategy? How does that relate to marketing? How do you think about the ROI of content and sort of the business case of doing what you're doing?
0: Right. You know what's interesting is the last time we had a reorg, our team came together with a content strategy team. And then we merged with the SEO team. And it's become really, really fun because we're able to see and understand why we're doing what we're doing a little bit better. You know, The fact that we have an, a content strategy team, to be honest, before I thought of content strategy as one, you have to ask, why are you creating this? Why are you creating this content? We're not creating it just to create it. We know that we want to create content that inspires and informs and helps exec level audiences in you know helping them to navigate the uncertain future in the industries we serve. We don't talk about Autodesk software because we're at this sort of more thought leadership level. We might mention it, but it's really not about the hero of the story is not Autodesk. We're really focused on the context of a larger business problem or innovation or, you know, the trends of the industries. When the content strategy team came in, I started to be able to connect the dots better, thinking about personas, audiences, thinking about the life cycle stages and how they connect. The team is great, they really get it. And then the SEO team coming in, helping us lean more heavily into winning, you know, through organic search. Because we've always, you know, focused on SEO, but now I feel so much more supported in this current environment with this team, really smart, smart people. I'm not a classically trained content strategist. I am a brand journalist. So to have these people supporting us, it really does help us understand why we do what we do. In fact, today, one of my other teammates, Steph, she is focused on creating ABM content. We have an annual report called The State of Design and Make, and we do these special reports, and her team works on that. So she's traditionally focused more on some regional content, and I guess I've been considered more of the global content creator. But we couldn't quite, you know, we couldn't quite figure out how to sort of like cleanly separate what we're doing. So our head of content strategy, Chris Sender, came in and just helped us think through everything in a way that made it make a lot more sense than it ever did before. So I feel very blessed to be part of this team.
1: Well, so it's interesting. So I I worked at a media company. I worked at like a traditional print media company. And I worked at a, like a new media company that I co-founded before starting Caspian. And so I've seen sort of what it takes to create like a magazine, like an actual magazine, and sort of the rigor and the way that that stuff is done, which is very, 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 very different from like a quote unquote, like new media organization that is sort of you know, endless, you know, articles and that sort of thing. And so I'm curious when you looked at sort of like the brand journalism piece of this, like what was your remit to make? Cause I mean, you really built as editor in chief, I mean, with Redshift and now Design and Make, I mean, you were running the show for this publication that like was a sizable publication in terms of like, if you were like its own little unique little entity, I don't know how many you know writers and creators you were managing at any given time, but you know, you're putting out a lot of content. Did you run it more like a newsroom? Did you run it more like a media organization? Did you run it as someone with more of that thread back to the business? Or is that something that, like you said, with that merger, that that has brought that part of it back in?
0: So many places I could go with this. When I started 11 years ago, We've rebranded twice. So the first time when we launched the publication, it was like a small business blog and it was called Line Shape Space. And it was like, I was kind of a one-man band. It was like, I was trying to play all the instruments, but I was a terrible drummer. And so, you know, but I played guitar, okay. But like, you know, so I was trying to do all of these things and crank out all this content. But over time, you know, our team grew and we had different perspectives and and it became a publication that was focused on, you know, businesses of all sizes. It became Redshift. It's evolved a lot. I will always think of it as a publication. I mean, the the goals have changed throughout the years. So, you know, in, in the beginning, it was our audience. They were all like very small business owners, and that has obviously changed quite a bit. I think that as we've moved on and evolved again... One thing I will say is there's another team that I want to give a shout out to. There's a, this team called Thought Leadership Strategy and Programs Team within Autodesk, led by a very cool woman, Vanessa Gordolini. And she and her team help us connect to the business goals. And what what is Autodesk trying to say about AI right now? What is Autodesk trying to say? What is our position about industrialized construction or digital twins or whatever emerging tech? I have learned a lot about connecting those dots, understanding what do we feel the audiences want to read about. We have to think about customers and prospects and what they care about. We also have to think about what Autodesk is, you know, what are our business goals? And so connecting those things together is really, really important. But at the same time, you can't sacrifice quality. You can't sacrifice, you know, the journalistic integrity that we've we've been betting on for so many years.
1: See that's i think pretty different from a lot of people making content marketing where they don't have any journalistic integrity. Not that there's like a right or wrong way to do it. No judgment either way. But when I talk to folks like you where they really obsess over the story and I you know can hear it in your voice the way you talk about this stuff like you obsess over the story so much which is very journalistic whereas I don't know what I would say more content marketers think about but But definitely not the story. Like, it's that's not, like, the obsession. is sort of maybe the utility. uh, Maybe just being generally more helpful, whereas the story is meant to, you know, like you've talked about, inform and inspire, educate. Yeah,
0: yeah. Inspire, inform, assist, whatever you want to say.
1: Yeah, but you use inform a lot, whereas, like, other people might say, like, help. But it just seems like you have such a journalistic bent to the way that you're telling these stories. And perhaps... That is one of the reasons why it's been so successful in, you know, making sure that the stories are good. Because I feel like a lot of us as content marketers, like, if I find a C-plus story, like, I'm running it. (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: So then why make it, you know? Right, right. Um, I'm just so lucky because we have so many great people on our team led by my manager, Dusty DiMercurio. I've known him for over 20 years, actually. He used to buy ads in one of the magazines that I was an editor at. And so it's kind of been a game of like Red Rover, Red Rover and Aaron Hansen over. Aaron Hansen is our head of operations and planning. And a lot of us, a number of us come from that music magazine background and ended up here because magazines, you know, a lot of them died out. And so we had to survive. But what I love is that we still get to tell incredibly interesting stories and learn about marketing and learn about how, you know, we we can't do something just because it's a great story. It has to tie to a goal. There are KPIs. One of, some of our main KPIs are what we call attention earned, which is time spent times monthly visitors. And so it gives you sort of this aggregate uh, number. And you can say this bamboo and construction article earned. 20,000 hours collectively of time on this particular piece. So that's one way that we know if something's really working. It's not just the average time on page, or it's not just, you know, it's it's like a volume and a engagement metric. We also do, you know, monthly visitors, increase in subscribers. These are important metrics as well. But yeah, we used to just, in my old life as a music editor, used to tell stories because, I don't know, all Williams is cool or Bjork is cool or, you know, Pre- Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders is, you know, love their music, you know, and I want to hear how they made it. But, you know, people bought ads in the magazines. And so when Dusty came to me 11 years ago and he said, have you ever heard of content marketing? I was like, nope, what's that? And he said, well, it's basically what you do, but it's for brands. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm cut out for marketing. I don't know if that's, he's like, look, if you hate it, and you want to quit after a month, we can still be friends. And I was like, okay, and now it's 11 years later. So obviously it worked out.
1: You mentioned some of those KPIs. I don't know if there's other things that you care about, whether it's looking at stories, how much stuff do you kick back? Like what matters to you? And what are your leadership? What do they care about? What are your KPIs?
0: Well, there are different KPIs for different content for different stages of life cycle. One thing that we discovered earlier today with Steph and Chris and and I talking about it is that Steph's KPIs are different with ABM. They are more tied to sales. They are more tied to, you know, executive engagement. And so it really depends on what the purpose is of the content. What we're trying to do with thought leadership is build affinity for Autodesk and become, you know, more than a software vendor, but A partner, you know, we're helping you navigate this uncertain future. And we're trying to help you understand like, what can you do with Gen AI in architecture? This is brand new. It's only been around for a year, you know, but there's something to explore there. There's one other point that I would love to make in that is um, KPIs are not just for leadership. Yes, you do need to prove the value of your content. And we've had situations in which we have a great story where somebody on my team, his name is Yasuo Matsunaka, he created the story about how Honda is using generative design to design a crankshaft. And that article was read by a lot of their competitors, like Toyota and Suzuki. And the sales exec for Suzuki brought that article to Suzuki, and it was apparently uh, a big reason why they tripled their EBA with Autodesk. Now, those stories are not going to come flying at us all the time because it's thought leadership. It's harder to show the connection between thought leadership and sales, but we're trying to cast a wide enough net that we can bring, you know, more of these potential customers into bold. fold. And so when I say that it's not just for leaders, these KPIs, it's also to inform the editorial planning process. So what I really want to see, and this is something that we're still building this muscle to do, is to look at patterns in the performance measurement to understand, okay, we know that people are really focused on AI content right now. So maybe we should do more of that. One thing that I noticed during the pandemic was we compared some headlines and whenever it had like negative language in the headline, it didn't perform as well as the content that had headlines with positive words in the headline. So I love that kind of insight because it can help inform what we do next or what we do less of.
1: Okay, what's one cool thing that you're working on now or that you're excited about?
0: So right now, I'm working with a couple of different agencies and and a number of people within Autodesk on these three animated thought leadership videos. They feature the CEO of Autodesk as well as four other of our top executives to really predict what the future of work could be like in the next 10 years for the architecture, engineering, construction, manufacturing, and M&E or media and entertainment industries and how augmented by AI it will radically change the way people work not just the AI but the way we're trying to connect everything connect all of the processes so you could have somebody working in Japan on you know a scene in a movie and then when it, you know that person closes his laptop somebody in San Francisco can then Take over and be working on maybe even a totally different part of it. They could be working on like some other part of the project. And using AI, they could also allow a lot more time for creativity because you're not doing as many of the mundane tasks you are doing. It's not, you know, as repetitive. You know, one example of that would be if you are designing a multi use building and you can use, say, generative design and give it sort of inputs. I want it to have this kind of daylighting. I want the energy to be as sustainable as possible. You, you kind of factor all of these things in and then you factor in cost and all these things. And then AI through generative design can offer up all of these different ideas, designs, and then you can take something and then say, this is the one I want to work with. And then you You know, you craft it, but then it enables you to be more innovative and more creative. And so I'm just really excited about what the future holds for these industries. You know, I'm not an expert in any of them, but I like to tell the stories about them. And I think one thing that makes me really excited is that our company is helping people mitigate climate change. We're helping people solve these pretty gnarly problems that are only going to get more complicated the resilience, you know, of buildings as hurricanes are getting increasingly worse or the fact that there's a need for more of everything, more buildings, more refrigerators, more cars, and yet we have the scarcity of resources and there's a lot of things compounding all of these issues. And then there's just a demand for more content, more more of everything. So I, I get excited by the fact that we're trying to solve through technology, trying to help people solve these pretty crazy problems.
1: What would be your best piece of advice for someone who is kind of sitting in the seat, head of owned media for a company, or who wanted to you know, build out a, a publication that is more like what you have built with Autodesk?
0: One thing that I've learned over the years is to listen a lot more. The more I take in perspectives from other people, I mean, I've, I've operated pretty well based on my own intuition and what I picked up and learned over the years about making a publication. But I've also learned a lot from other people. And when I just shut up and listen, that tends to help me grow quite a bit more than if I just kind of like keep my blinders on, It's so, like status quo. Like I know that there are six people on my team, and I can learn from every one of them. So I, I'm trying. I'm still working on this. It wasn't always like my strongest suit, being a, an active listener. But I'm I'm working on it, and I think it's helped.
1: Well, we're glad that you talked a lot today because it was <laughs> it was awesome having you on the show. I'll, I'll give a quick shout out to one of the pieces that I really liked on Design and Make with Autodesk, which you can go to Autodesk dot com slash design dash make to learn more. You have a cool story about desert tortoises and how crows have been attacking baby tortoises and the tortoises endangered. And they made a basically fake baby tortoises that spray, basically a a spray to annoy the crows. And I thought that was a really cool uh, article.
0: Yeah, I love that story. These amazing filmmakers worked on it, and our former video producer, Shweta Berry, worked on it with these filmmakers. But it's just, there's actually, there's a a wonderful extended, longer version of it on The New Yorker. They had an exclusive of it, but they used our software, they used Fusion to create these fake baby tortoises that would admit this grape Scent that apparently ravens can't stand grape scents. So, you know, it's funny because the conservation biologists were saying, like, as soon as they figure out what's going on, you know, it's over, the game is over. But for now, they've seen a a really big impact from that, that that's actually doing the job of saving baby tortoises.
1: Well, you live in the Bay Area as well here. And specifically, we got a lot of ravens here in Oakland and uh, the Bay Area. So I'm going to start. Putting grapes on stakes outside of uh, my fence, like the cast, like Sterling Castle with heads back in the 1400s.
0: We'll see if that works.
1: Yeah, I'll let you you know. Green grapes and red grapes.
0: (laughs) Just throw them at them.
1: Yeah. Kylie, absolutely wonderful chatting with you today. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Uh,
0: You know, I'm just, I was super honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me and go check out Design and Make with Autodesk.
1: And go sign up for the newsletter. Why not? Um, Do it. <laughs> you'll, never, you'll never miss a story if you sign up. Well, thanks again and take care.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios. B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at CaspianStudios.com. Hollywood-style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.